Hi, my name is Sean Witzel, artist and activist, and welcome to Just Conversations, Nashville Reads, How to Be an Anti-Racist, filmed in the grand reading room of the Nashville Public Library. And I'm joined by my friend here. Hi, my name is Adrian Gott. I attend Davidson Academy and I'm a writer. Adrian, welcome. Thank you for being here. So, Davidson Academy, huh? Yes. I love it there. That's a great school. So, um, you read chapter 13 of this uh, wonderful book, uh, and, which is titled uh, Spaces. Tell me what you, what you, what were your initial takeaways uh, when you read this chapter? My initial takeaways were, it was really interesting how the author put terms of space when it came to race relations because a lot of the times when we think about race we think of it as something physical it can never be something that can go back to geography and where people live and how we perceive people in place we usually don't think about that so i think it's interesting that an author had a different take on how being racist and the concepts of being anti-racist can go into physically where we are and what we do. Wow, wow, great, great takeaway. Um, I, one of the things that really stood out to me was um, the story that he told about um, the HBCU and, and, and the, the, the woman, his uh, classmate, who was, um, who blamed a whole institution for a mistake of one person. What did you think about that story? I thought that was pretty interesting of how, because they were blamed for one thing, but I feel like the author put it in terms of a bigger picture. He was moreover trying to explain how a lot of the times few mistakes can happen or instances can happen and we can stereotype or categorize an entire group of people just based off of that. So I felt like his need to connect with the reader on that level of just giving a next dose from an HBCU, that's, it's amazing and it should be told that way because a lot of people can relate to that and a lot of people look at the bigger picture of, okay, one group of people is being marginalized, one group of peop people is being stereotyped. So I thought it was interesting the way that he told the story. Yeah, yeah, me too. Um, and he talks about um, black space. What, when you think of black space, how do you define that yourself? Or, and, and give me some examples of what you, what you uh, would, would call black space. Of course, when I think of black space and black environment, I think of somewhere that's safe. I think of environments that were not only made for you, but a lot of the times they're made by you. They're made by people who look like you and who support you. There are little instances, like I'll give you an example. Usually at HBCUs, they may have a, a percentage of white students that attend, but that doesn't mean that they don't oppose any other racial group. But those spaces were made to support and to uphold all of their black students. So when I think of black space, I feel like that is a part of upholding people that have had their rights stolen from them. And it's all about equity. It's all about creating that space where they just even feel like they're on a level playing field. So that's what black space means to me. 
What are some What are some examples outside of HBCUs that you that you think of that come to mind when you think about Black Space? Yeah, and when I think of Black Space, I feel like that even simply goes back to our households. That goes back to even you know where you, if you do identify as Black, were you raised in a household in which you feel like your mom or dad taught you at a young age? Well, you know, you can do anything. You can be anyone. You can have the same goals and aspects that anyone else can have. Even in those spaces, parents realize it's important to teach their children black excellence, but at the same time, it's on such a simple level of you can be anyone and there is no standard that you must live up to, you follow your heart. So I feel like the first black space that a lot of black children encounter is their home with their parents because you know parents are the first teachers so they set that standard of black space and along with that just black excellence. That, that's amazing because I, I don't think I thought about it that way. I, I think um, you know I, I, I've heard that saying to your parents your parents are your first teachers and that's something that I've said before. Um, so when I was thinking about when I asked you that question I thought a lot about like formal spaces you know like like institutions but i think that you make an excellent point about if you if you are a black person uh your home is like the first black space that you experience so i think that is amazing so um he talks about this idea of black spaces being devalued while white spaces are elevated can you talk mm -hmm. to me about your thoughts about that yes i would like to say a lot of the times no matter when it comes to the environment. Usually when people set a standard of what is normalized, we usually see throughout American history at least that those um, Eurocentric environments have been put as the norm because that has been the majority culture. So when people do notice what we, we know personally as black spaces and spaces where we feel like we can be creative and think together and come together, people see that as different. And usually when people don't know much about it or they question it or they're not used to it because it's different, they don't value it. They devalue it as much as our standard of whiteness when it comes to um, being in an environment. That goes a lot into um, cultural assimilation. It goes into what I know the black community and a lot of the POC community defines as code switching. When you leave somewhere and you go into um, somewhere where you're not as comfortable or there is not as many people of color in that environment, you change the way that you speak, the way that you interact with others. You take the things that you would normally do in your black space that you've learned from your black excellence and you assimilate to the environment that society says it's standard, that society says is normal. And for everyone across you know, the country, no matter where you are, that looks different. But when it comes to um, the black community, we can all relate to that aspect of, okay, I'm going here, so I need to dress this way or speak this certain way. So that is why usually when it comes to black spaces, they're usually devalued versus the white standard. But we have to work towards changing that, especially with cultural assimilation. Most definitely. Can you, th can you think about a time where you um, entered what we would consider a white space at a time that, that you may have been uncomfortable or, uh, or you felt 
I don't know, maybe that you were being judged or maybe you, there was um, a sense that others felt like you didn't belong. Do you have any experiences like that? Yes, I have a lot of experiences <laughs> um, similar to that one. And I'm trying to think of specifics, but I can give you a generalization of, for about part of my life, I was in what, you, what we just talked about as black spaces, you know, black excellence is valued, you know, my parents instilling that in me. But when it comes to being uncomfortable in white environments, I feel that a lot. I feel that um, not only in some public places where maybe I am one of the only, you know, people of color there, but my school is a majority white school. And even when it comes to um, just being racially insensitive of everyone, regardless of the culture. Sometimes in places where they are majority white institutions, that becomes difficult because since there are not very many people of color, not a lot of people are as aware or what we like to call woke, you know, yeah. on black causes or black history, or even how black people, we're still trying to figure ourselves out today, how we go about in society. They're not as aware on those causes. So when I am in those environments and I do meet my peers who are different than me, um, ethnically, culturally, with their backgrounds, I have to take a second to understand, okay, we are different. I am the only black kid in this honors class. We are talking, we may talk about things that not all of us can relate to, but I have to have a certain comfortability in myself and knowing who I am. So no matter where I go, when I am in these white environments, five, six days a week that I'm still able to represent myself without having to feel the pressure of the normalized white society. And it's not that there is disrespect towards me personally, it's just that as different cultures, we're not all the time gonna be able to relate to each other. And when it comes to what we call, what we know as whiteness and being a person of color and being black or African-American or Haitian-American, we're, we're not gonna be able to relate to each other on those levels, but there is a certain level of respect that we need to have. That's what I do value about my school and when, we go, when I go into those white environments. But I know if I asked about maybe a lot of my friends who are young women of color, they would have that same perception of, well, when I go into this white environment, I know they're not gonna maybe do things or think the same things that I do. But it's all about knowing who you are. Mm -hmm. Is there any pressure on you in those particular environments to educate? Do you feel like that's something that you want to do? Or is that something that you feel like that you shouldn't have to do? And, you know, I've heard kind of both sides and I can and I can understand both sides. I'm curious to know. how. You yes, feel. I have an interesting opinion on that because, OK, so I have a pretty diverse group of friends. A lot of my friends outside of school, they come from extremely mixed nationalities and religions and genders. But when but my other part of my friends who are um, white, 
when I am with them, regardless if I'm with my friends from school or my friends outside of school, I'm the type of person to where I feel like if there is something that needs to be addressed, worse, I know something and you don't, and it's culturally, if it relates to anything historical or just me being a black woman in America, I feel that need to educate. And it doesn't come from a level of, I'm gonna sit here and argue with you about my experience. It's that you may not know my experience and that's okay because like I said, it all relates down to our households and how we're raised. And so just because you're white and you're a different gender than me doesn't mean I can't sit with you and have an educated conversation on my experiences every day in America. And I don't feel as much pressure because I know a lot of people say, well, when I'm in that white environment or whatever it is, I do feel pressure because I feel like I have to explain myself all the time. Yes, you may feel that way sometimes, but for me personally, I never look at that as an instance to walk away or to be nervous or to be frightened about those topics just because I know that if Whoever I'm talking to, if we're both patient, if we're both respectful, if we're both humble, and we're truly willing to have open ears, then that's someone that at the end of the day, I know that when I walk away, that's someone that I educated and that knows more about my culture and we have a deeper understanding. And honestly, when it comes to different ethnicities, that is something that is more vital than a lot of other things that we could do because just the value of understanding someone else's culture and being able to talk to them through your differences, that creates more generations of people who are more open-minded and who know that, hey, I may not be in this experience, but I know someone who is. So you know what? Let me put myself in their shoes. So <laughs> I'm happy to have conversations with whoever it is about my experience. It, it doesn't unsettle me, but it actually eases me to let me know that I educated someone, someone who would rather not have this, who wouldn't rather have this conversation if it weren't for me telling them about my experience. Wow, beautifully put. Thank you for that. Um, there's this, uh, he talks about in the book of uh, the, the idea of looking, um, well, there, again, back to the HBCU experience, he talks about how um, sometimes people say, well, uh, an HBCU is not uh, representative of the real world. So that's kind of the argument against going to HBCUs. And so, and he argues that, well, that's because we're looking at the quote, real world uh, from a, a white lens, right? Which you mentioned earlier. and. He says there are no there's no such thing as the real world. There are real worlds. So um, when you how do you how do you push back against um, that idea that um, black spaces don't represent the real world? So maybe for some reason they're not as important. What, what would you say to that? Yeah. And also. I feel like when it comes to those black spaces, we all acknowledge the historical significance of them first and foremost. But also I wanted to give an example of, say you were raised in a Christian household. Usually a lot of people who um, don't have the same faith 
would come to parents and they would say, you know, well, why are you guarding your children from watching this show or listening to, I don't know, this type of music or something like that? Because, well, in the real world, they're going to be exposed to it anyway. So why create this safe space where they are free to practice what, whatever they choose? It's kind of similar. It doesn't mean that the real world isn't going to be like that. Those parents would probably just tell the other person, yes, they will experience environments that are different from this one, but what I'm instilling in them and the safetyness that they feel right now, which they may not have later, to be honest, that's gonna, that's gonna allow them to grow. What I'm putting in them is allowing them to see all the possibilities and how far they can dream and how far they can go. So I relate that even to um, a kindergarten classroom, you know, you have your pre-K and kindergarten teachers tell you the basic morals of, you know, treat each other kindly and it's not okay to lie, always share. Is the real world like that? No, there is a lot of lying and stealing and it is corrupt. But does that take away of the significance of those precious moments of you having hope, you feeling comfort, you having that safe space where you know those things are valued. So I would relate that back to having HBCUs and having black spaces because we know we live in a world, and I can say the world, or I can even put it in terms of just America as a country, but while we're living here, we know that the world isn't always gonna be Black Lives Matter, or it's not gonna be black excellence, um, pro this and pro that. But we do have those spaces for a limited amount of time to instill in us hope of, okay, this is how far I can dream. And even when I'm facing the most tragic things in my life because of the color of my skin, I know that I am connected with all of my black brothers and sisters, and we have something in us so great that no worldly hardship can take it away from us. And that's why black spaces are vital, and there should be nothing that should um, take away from that. Awesome. So final question. In reading this book, because I can tell you're a very intelligent and insightful young woman, and, I, and it looks like you've learned a lot in your, in your young life which I think is amazing. Um, what, what in this chapter did you, did you read? What piece of information did you learn or, or just a little bit of insight did you gain from reading this chapter that you'll take with you? Yeah, one thing that I learned was basically like how you were talking about black spaces no matter where we are. I feel like it's important to where when we do travel and we do move to acknowledge that we have those communities. And I think it was in another chapter that he was talking about um, racism on a level of culture, basically. So if you're African-American and you kind of judge, if say you're from the North and you judge Southern, black Southern culture and you're like, oh, well, this is different or that's not real black culture. I took away from that just no matter where you are or 
what your nationality is, you can have that feeling of interconnectedness with your community. And I learned, I actually learned this yesterday. I just thought about it. But one cool fact was we know that race is a social construct. I mean, there are different ethnicities, but when it comes to race, that was generally used just to put people of similar skin complexions, hair textures, and facial features in a certain box, regardless of what culture they are, um, what they value, even sometimes like, for example, their ancestry, because not every black, what, who you consider to be a black person is just gonna have African ancestry or they may have different faiths. But from the chapter, I acknowledged even more of how we are more together than we think. And even though race has been used to divide us, the one thing that I know a lot of people take pride in as a black person is, oh, I could be from Haiti, or I could be um, originally born and raised in Haiti, um, Haitian American, I could be Jamaican, I could be from Ghana, I could be from Chad, I could be from Zimbabwe, I could be um, a brown-skinned um, Japanese girl who identifies as black, who lives in Russia, I could be um, mixed with Mongolian and live in, Aust and live in Australia, or I could just be African American. At the end of the day, even though race is something that is in your mind, it's mental, it's a social construct. Black people have that intercommunity, and we feel our family, honestly, no matter what our nationality is, our faith, where we live in the world. And that's where I got the term of when he was talking about space. Because if you were to ask those different people who lived globally around the world, what is something that categorizes you and your identity, it would be your blackness. And that's something that stands out no matter wherever you are. And that's what I got from the book, largely. Thank you for sharing that. Thank you for being a part of this conversation today. I, I truly enjoyed speaking with you and learning from you. And um, any last words before we wrap up? My last word would probably be, I encourage young writers to write more books like this that are as inspiring and to just keep having these conversations because they're important. That's what we're working for and that's what we need to keep doing. Well, that sounds like a great note to end on. Thank you so much for tuning into our discussion today. For more information and more episodes, you can go to www.justconversations.org. Thank you. Just Conversations is presented by the Metro Nashville Human Relations Commission. Executive producers Sarah Imran, Mark Etherly, Barbara Gunlardi, and Bob Farisee. Directed by Cooper Smith and produced by Alex Bennett, Caroline Pace, and Cooper Smith. Special thanks to the Nashville Public Library, Jenna Schmidt, and Mark Crowder. For more information and more episodes, visit justconversations.org. Follow us on Twitter at Just Conversate, on Instagram at Just Conversaciones, or on Facebook at Just Conversate.